We're already five books into the Bible, only 61 to go. And as we look at those first five books of the Bible, we see the beginning of the story of the Bible, the message of the Bible. And I kind of summarize that the the message of the Bible is about a God whose whose, uh, desire, whose, I'm going to read this, whose nature whose nature is to be in relationship, and when humans have sinned, is on the move through ordinary people, organizing community, to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. We've seen in those first five books how it begins. We see the, the beginning, the creation, that the creation is from the overflow of God's love. That God's love, God's relationship overflows and, and creates the world, and creates human beings that are uniquely in the image of God. And we see that those human beings have free will and that uh, what did they do with their free will? They, they use it to disobey. And uh, the Bible is very clear. And, and tonight, oh my goodness, tonight we're really going to get into it. The Bible does not have an optimistic view of unaided human nature. The Bible does not, isn't like, y'all are just great. Um, it's not like that. And what we see in the rest of the Bible is that God does not look down. He does not look down with anger, does not look down with uh, condemnation, but looks down and says these people need help. So the Bible is the story of God coming in mercy to help us. That's also a good definition for grace. The Bible is about God's grace. And so how does God do that? You know, it's so funny. I'm, th- I'm thinking about this this week. And I think when people read the Bible and they, 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 they hear the story and they see the world around it, I think people get really frustrated. And why do people get frustrated? Not because it's hard to understand, but because they think, you know, if I was God, I'd just snap my fingers and make it right. Like, I, I got to admit, like, I would do that. But God doesn't. God's not going to say, well, I'm just going to force everything to be right. I'm going to take away your free will, and you're just going to behave, darn it. Any of you with children can probably ponder over that one for a minute. You're just going to behave. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God says God wants to be in relationship. If God's nature is relationship, if God's nature is relationship, how is God going to heal and redeem the world? What would be? Take a guess. How is he going to do it? Through people. Through people, through relationships, right? If God created in relationships, God loves us in relationships, how is God going to save the world through relationships? And so if that's the plan, if the plan is to save the world through relationships, well, then God's going to have to have a relationship with someone. And the person God first chooses to have a relationship is Abram, right? And through Abram, through the miraculous provision of children in Isaac, God forms a people. And it's a people that then God finds when they are struggling, when they are enslaved and in mercy rescues them. That God makes a covenant with them. We talked about covenant last week, right? That covenant is, is, is a promise, but it's not just a promise of things. It's an interconnection. It's a promise that your future and my future are going to be interconnected. And the the basic concept of this covenant is that you, Israel, 
descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will be my people and I will be your God. You'll be my people. You will be my light to the nations. And so how does he do that? And we talked about the, the, th- the two ways the covenant manifests in law and worship. That the way that we, that we can see that Israel is God's people is not just because God says so, that would be enough, but because God has given them the covenant, the law. There's no, the psalmist says, to no other nation has God given his ordinances, his law. No other nation knows the will of God, that, that God has given that to his people, and also uh, through worship, through the proper way that people could commune with God. Because the problem is we have a perfectly holy God and an unholy people. And so God, so, so if, 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 you know, holy God, unholy people, uh, who has to provide the way for those two to be united? With the holy one or the unholy one? You can participate here. The holy one, right, 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 right. And so God does that. And it may seem a little complex to us, but, but holiness, that holiness of God, God says, I'm going to share that holiness with you, with Israel. And so he provides the way, and where we left off last week, the people uh, are on the edge of the Jordan River. They've come from the west, but actually now they're on the east side of the Jordan River. They've kind of gone the long way. Only took them 40 years. And Moses dies. And that's where we begin today, if you'll turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. So this week in week three, we begin at Joshua chapter one. We'll look at the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and eight chapters of 1 Samuel uh, in in the next 40 minutes or so. Joshua is, uh, it begins with telling us about Joshua. Joshua is, was the uh, probably personal assistant to Moses. He learned from Moses. Uh, It's interesting, Moses uh, the the uh, and Pastor Chris and I were talking about this that the Old Testament appears to have a pretty dim view that holiness is passed down from father to son, and you'll see that again and again here that there is a dim view of that, and so God doesn't God anoints Joshua, he does it through Moses. Uh, Moses lay end of Deuteronomy. Moses lays his hands on Joshua and commissions Joshua. I mean, just think of the disappointment of Moses, right? He leads the people out of Egypt. He puts up with them for 40 years. He pleads with God over and over again. And God says, but you're not going to enter. That uh, what, you're, what you have accomplished, what you have built, will be, used by the, will be led by the next generation. It, well, because he did not obey what God had, because Moses, and that's what happened was that Moses uh, was told to speak to the rock, and instead, in anger, he struck the rock. And that's, and, and, and we're sitting there like, that seems awfully minor compared to all the nonsense he put up with for 40 years with people. Um, but I think there's a lesson there, not just about disobedience, but also about a lot of what we do may not be reaped by us, but by future generations. I think we're going to find here, and I'll talk about it a specific example in just a couple minutes, that God's promises don't come true overnight. 
that God's promises, uh, God's time horizon is a lot longer than my time horizon and your time horizon. You know, we, I think some of us, I think many of us, I hope all of us pray for revival for our nation, for our world. And I suspect many of you have been doing that for several years, and maybe you're just a bit disappointed that it seems like things are getting worse and not better. But God's time frame is longer than ours. You and I can think in maybe terms of years, decades. Maybe for some of you, time can be measured in a century. But for God, a century is pretty short. You know, a year is like a thousand, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Do you all remember? I think Mike Voigt told that story. Do you remember that story? I think Mike told it in a sermon a couple of, probably three years ago here. I don't know why this has stuck with me. Don't tell Mike it's like probably the most sticky thing he said while, he was, while I was here with him. <laughs> but do you remember? It was a story, uh, a child who uh, came to, um, who came to God and said, uh, God, is it true that a thousand years are like a day? To a, day a day to us, a thousand years to us is like a day to you? Yes. D- does that mean that a penny to us is like a thousand dollars to you? He said, God said, well, I suppose so. And he said, do you remember this? said, well, can I have a couple of those pennies then? <laughs> do you remember what God said? Sure, can you wait a minute? (laughs) So there we go, right? Like God's time is different. And so what we're seeing here is something that's coming out is that this 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 process seems so drawn out, but but God's time is not like our time. And so for a long time, 40 years they've been wandering in the desert, and now here they are on the edge of the Jordan River. And they're waiting for God to tell them what to do. I, th- I think they're going to, this is going to be a theme you're going to see. When they wait for God to tell them what to do, things go well. When they do not seek God, things do not go well. There's a life lesson you can write down for yourself right there. It's my, one of my life lessons. I'm really trying to learn that because I want to get things done now, fast, immediately on my time. But then, so what happens is then they prepare. They, spend, they send spies across the Jordan. The first kind of place that they're going to find when they cross the Jordan is an ancient city with big walls. and It's called Jericho. They go to Jericho, and uh, the king knows there are spies there, and they say, well, go find the spies, uh, search them out, and uh, they're because they're planning to be up to no, no good. And uh, for some reason, God turns the heart of someone named Rahab. She is a prostitute, which is a little bit strange when you think about it. And so they come... And Rahab lets them in. We don't really know why, but other than to say that God turned her heart. She says, I know the Lord has given you the land. We know that. We've heard what happened at the Red Sea. We've heard what happened to the kings of the Amorites. We know that, and she says, I know that the Lord your God is actually God, and so we beg for mercy 
And the men said, if you don't tell anyone, we will deal kindly and faithfully with your family. And they said, if what you, what you do is when we come, here is a red crimson cord you can tie outside of your window. Now there's, a good, there's some good imagery there. Don't miss it. Crimson cord out of the window and we will spare you. If you don't do that, it's on you, not me, is what they say. And so he does that. And they depart, they go back, and then Israel crosses the Jordan. And they come and they set up 12 stones at the place called Gilgal. 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They recommit themselves through circumcision. It's interesting, circumcision, we didn't talk too much about that. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a guy, it just is an uncomfortable subject to talk about. Uh, But circumcision is the sign, the physical sign of the covenant. If they're circumcised, they're Jewish, they're Israelites, they're Hebrews. If they are not circumcised, they are not. That's men only, men only. And but for some reason, at, 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 and what they had done is they go and they get them across and they decide to really commit ourselves we're going to circumcise the men a second time. I'd rather not, but uh, I don't know about y'all. Uh, but they do. The, uh, they did all the people born on the journey through the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised, which is really interesting. But they decide that they're not going to enter until they have this sign of the covenant, the sign of their commitment to God. And they do. And they celebrate the Passover there. And then they go and they enter Jericho. Jericho is interesting. Jericho is a big city. It is, we're in chapter 6 right now. Yes. Here it's, a, it's about 10 acres. It's not a big city. That was, okay. I want to say, when I say well, big, like big when I say big city, that was a big city back then. Ten acres is, no, it's about half the size of uh, this property we're on. But most of what we're talking about are very small places. The fact it had a wall was probably a sign it was a big city. Now, having said that, you get in the issue of numbers in the Bible, and you think, gee whiz, ten acres, a million people. This is not hard. Uh, we couldn't fit a million people on ten acres. Some of the numbers in the Bible, I, I, the, the, the way they count... Um, the words for thousands could mean other things, and and but but in general, what historians have found is the towns of that era are very small. And Jericho, we I think it's intentional that we see one of the larger cities first, even though ten acres doesn't seem that big at all. Ten acres is uh, you know maybe two hundred people, um, but they they go in, and what we would say is you know did they did they take the wall by great military power? Uh, the answer is. No. In fact, what is their military strategy? They march around the city seven times, and the seven times they, the priests blow the trumpet, and Joshua said to the people, the Lord has given you the city. And the walls fall down. You all probably heard the song, right? The walls fall down, and they go, and they capture the city. But they take Rahab with them, put a bookmark on that because we're going to come back to that later. Uh, Joshua, what we see here is we continue to see the story. Later, uh, the city of Ai is captured. 
and and then uh, the uh, and the Amorites are are capped are are destroyed, and what we see there is ongoing. God is at work. What is happening here is not because I think it's really clear. Joshua is a great military leader, but it is not by military strength that the promised land is taken. It's by the supernatural work of God. Now, we see an example of this in uh, Joshua 10, a famous story about the sun standing still. Now, you say to me, that's one of those strange things the Bible talks about uh, that, that doesn't make sense. Uh, scientists, physicists, astronomers will tell you that if uh, the, the, the sun does not move, the earth moves, so if the earth stopped moving, uh, what would happen is immediately uh, the world would be destroyed. So I don't know what happened here. But what I know is I think they're saying here in a very specific way that God provided uh, extra time to complete the battle and take the land. Here's what I mean about time. It's believed that Joshua chapter 10 happens roughly at the same place where Abram is promised the land. 750 or so years earlier. So we talk about how long it takes God to fulfill his promises. God said to Abram, I will give you this land. And the day Abram dies, all he owns is a cave to bury his wife in, where he's buried. And he's still semi-nomadic. And later, God promised them the land, but they're slaves in Egypt. And finally, 750 years later, God is delivering on his promise to give them the land. And so they receive it there. And what we see there very clearly, when we look at the conquests, and we can go through them in more detail, but we don't really have time tonight, is simply to say that the conquests are enabled and empowered by God because God fulfills his promises. That's essentially the message of the first half of Joshua, is God fulfills his promises. God said, I will give you this land, and now God is doing that. And then from chapters, and then, but at the same time, there are still parts of the land in chapter 13 where we are, where the land is still unconquered. There are still parts of it. However, at this point, we find if you read Joshua, you will find that there are substantial numbers of chapters pretty much 10 of them, that simply describe the different areas that the 12 tribes of Israel will possess. It's interesting because they do this somewhat on faith, because some of these lands have not yet been captured. But they also do it uh, for a specific reason. The land is another physical sign of God's promises. God promised that they would be a blessing, but they would be a blessing through the land that God had given them. And so, um, and so when you look at that, what, what is the, what's the important thing about the land? It's God's promise, God's provision, and God is very specific what families are to have what land. And it's different. Their understanding of land and our understanding are different. For some of us, we have uh, land that we live on. Many of you, most of you own the land you live on, or you own it in tandem with the bank at least. Some of you own land of about a quarter of an acre. 
Some of you own land of maybe 50 or 100 acres, maybe more. And that land for you is primarily an asset. The house on it is an asset. And probably it's an asset you bought at one time, and eventually maybe someday you would sell. That's not quite what God teaches the people of Israel. That that land is not an asset for you, but it is a, it is a heritage for you to be passed on through the family, to be, to be kept in the family. And I know some of you have land like that. I think I know, George, you live on land that was, that was your father's before you. And, uh, but, but they would go back hundreds of, of years on this property. And in fact, in, in, um, in uh, Leviticus, they speak about something called the Jubilee, which is every 50 years that people had given debt or they'd had to sell off their land. Every 50 years, it would be returned to them. There's no evidence they actually practiced that. But the idea was that that land it doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to God. And God has let you use it. That's the, the, the importance of, of, uh, of the land to them. Uh, so later on, we'll talk about in the prophets, where the prophets condemn the, the leaders of Israel, saying that you have impoverished the people. They have had to give up their land. That's why that is. That, that's not because uh, necessarily the idea that you know that that uh, God is is some sort of um, you know political leftist or whatever. It's the idea that the land is such a trust that to take it from people is to take away something that, that is very much their physical, tangible connection with God and God's promises. Uh, so that, that's why when, later when we'll talk about that, uh, it, will be, it will be very important. To have land is to, have, it's to be proof that you are a part of God's family. There were still people in that area that were not, did not have land. You remember reading about the Gibeonites in Joshua. And the Gibeonites were people who they heard the Israelites were coming, and they heard how powerful they were, and they said... Um, they, they, they said, we will, uh, we're, we're just people passing through and we will be your servants if you don't kill us. It's kind of funny because the people actually, uh, they were not, they lied to, they lied to Joshua. But Joshua had not consulted God. And he made the deal without consulting God. And in the end, it was disobedience to God. Those people had tricked him. Uh, the but, world clothes and things. Yeah, they, they wore the yeah they wore clothes that were uh, that made them look like they were from another area. I mean, it was it was a really substantial trick that they that they that they played. So uh, when you see this, you uh, you see that this land is integral to the promises of God. It's integral to to uh, and that it was and that by it's very clear that part of having this land is part of the way that God will bless them by connecting them to a real place. They are not going to be wanderers. Uh, they are not going to be subject to anyone else, but they are going to be those people who exist in, in literally the center of the known world. If you think about that. Like, we don't see, think of it that way because we see, the, we see all the, the, you know, both hemispheres, but in a world where known civilizations stretch from uh, China to England to Africa, what's in the middle of those three? It's like right there. And, and in the area before uh, substantial um, naval traffic and certainly before air traffic, if you want to get from England to South Africa, how do you go if you go by land? You go right through there. 
It is not an accident that God placed his people in the center of what was then the world. That is not an accident. I'm convinced of it. And so they claim this promise, and they say that God has given this land in specific areas to specific families and specific uh, tribes. And it's, it, when, when Joshua is, is read, Joshua is then read and understood probably through the context of the exile, which we find later that the people do not uh, follow what God has commanded them entirely, and, and, not, and not, at, not at all, in fact, eventually. And we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Um, and so God removes them from the land. That removal from the land, return to the land, is very much connected with God's judgment and blessing. The land is really important. And so can you imagine you're in exile because of disobedience? Can you see the promises that God may return return you may be doing well even in Babylon and many of them did and like Daniel who's in high place in government but the promise is still to go back to that place that land that God had given them so they're there they renew the covenant at the end of Joshua and once again they're reminded put away the gods your ancestors served beyond the river in Egypt and that great line in for Joshua said now if you're unwilling to serve the Lord choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served in the region behind the rivers the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my household we will serve the Lord Joshua 24 15 I know a lot of you probably that's a that's a big uh, for my father that's a scripture that was very meaningful to him when my brother and I were little uh, that you know that as a, as the you know my parents had a dis, had a responsibility to raise us in the the in in the fear and the the devotion to God and and they did and so I, I think about that that passage is that renewal of the covenant and so we come to the end of Joshua and we think well this things are going real well <laughs> things are going real well you know the people are uh, they're in their new land. They're in that place that God had given them. They have seen God's promises firsthand. And they have heard from their parents and their grandparents about Egypt. They have seen the crossing of the, of the, of the Jordan, which is, is portrayed as a, a second parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea, a second miracle, though not in the same way. A second crossing there. They have seen God miraculously defeating enemies. And so you think, this things are going really, going to go really well. I thought about this. You know, the Bible has a surprisingly honest understanding of life. How many of you think <laughs> things are going real well in your life, and then the bottom falls out? Has it ever happened to any of you? Like, it's going real well, and then, like, something terrible happens. It's going really well, something terrible. That's pretty much exactly what happens when we go from Joshua to Judges. In Joshua, what we see is the rewards and the, rewards isn't a great word, but the outcome of obedience and faithfulness. When we go to Judges, on the other hand, we see the struggle and punishment for unfaithfulness. I think most, most readings you do, the thesis statement, you know, the main argument, the main point 
is usually in the beginning of the book, usually somewhere around the beginning. It says, uh, this is what this book is about. I think in the book of Judges, the thesis statement, the main purpose of Judges is at the end of Judges, the very last verse, Judges 21-25. It is the theme verse for the, those days, and in some ways, it is the theme verse for our own days. In those days there was no king of Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. You read that today and you're like, this sounds good. I want to assure you, this is not a good thing. <laughs> in fact, when you look at the structure of Judges, you don't have to be a literary expert when you read it. There, when you see phrases going over and over and over again in a book, it's probably important in the Bible. Just when, when, you, when something shows up like ten times in a book, uh, that's going to probably be the sign of the beginning of a section. And so here's the structure of the book of Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how you divide and outline the book of Judges. Because you see what happens is that... Um, after Joshua dies, and that generation dies, they decide, you know, this conquest, this war thing, it's getting old. We just live here and just deal in peace. And to us, to a certain degree, when we think about God, we think, well, isn't that what God would want? Wouldn't God want us to live it in peace with our neighbors? And that's one of the reasons that Joshua and Judges, the violence and the destruction make it so hard for us to really understand where is the message of God, but it's pretty clear when you read this that the problem is that whenever the people intermix and intermarry God's people with other cultures and religions, they never bring them in. They always go over to the other religion. I don't know why. I'm thinking about that today. I was like, well, I mean, why? Why is that? And so what Judges makes clear is that the practices of the foreign peoples become the practices of God's people. It's interesting. I don't think God, God doesn't say, well, those people are terrible people, although I think that's probably part of it. What he says is, what those people do, you are my people and you are not to do. Have you ever said that, especially with like your children? You know, that, that those pe your, your neighbors, those friends from school, they may do that, but you're not going to do that. But they're wiped off the face of the earth without remorse. <laughs> they are, but not all of them. Well, and, I mean, and right now, part of... All through judges, or, uh, Joshua, Joshua <laughs> it's, they're, they're annihilated. They're annihilated, they're destroyed. And that is really... There are many ways to talk about that. Uh, some of them, I think, are dodges. I think a lot of folks, when you read a lot of scholars on this, they'll say, well, you know, they just got a little excited, and they, they didn't actually kill all of them. Um, because there are moments where it's like, it makes it sound like everyone's been destroyed, and then it says, and then there are these people. And you're like, wait, but I thought they destroyed them all. Uh, so, this also something of a justification 300 years ago for all different forms of segregation? Well, yes, but I think that would be a very poor reading. I think that would be a very poor reading because, because that, well, I mean, I, people can justify a lot of things with a lot of things. I, I'm not going to, but I think the point is, is this, this is not a separation as in 
I think this separation is um, based on this this covenant that God has made for the benefit of the world. And in fact, we find that it is not a strict racial and ethnic segregation. For example, yeah, I, I mean, because what happens with Rahab? You know, Rahab isn't just spared. She's brought in to become one of the people. Uh, Ruth, we're going to talk about Ruth later. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is brought in to be one of the people. Um, and, and a lot of that is... Now, some, one argument on, the, on, on the, the violence of Joshua and Judges is that the people who are there are under condemnation for their own sin. Um, and like I said, this is a difficult thing. I can't give you an easy answer. These are, if you read this, you, after a while, it's just kind of like, it, it's kind of gory. It's like, and we burned that city, and we burned that city, and we put them to the sword. We even killed their animals, which, you know, you're like, that seems a little excessive. Um, and then here in Judges, the issue is that they didn't quite do it all. And they became interconnected with the religious practices of their neighbors and they failed in the unique and total 100% worship of Yahweh God that is what uh, the first commandment's about uh, you will have no other gods before me and we see here the violation of, of that and it leads to, uh, to evils and God uh, says they abandoned the Lord they followed other gods from among the gods the people all around they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. So the anger of the Lord was, and this is Judges 2, was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune, as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them, and they were in great distress. And so there is kind of this pattern you see in multiple times. Uh, first, the people do evil, and then there's some nation that is raised up to oppress them. The Lord, in chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, verse 12, the Lord did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened King Eglon of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites who went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab for 18 years, which seems like a long time. But the Israelites cried, and so then next, the people, they finally remember, oh yeah, there was this God who rescued us last time, maybe he'll rescue us again. So the Israelites cry out to the Lord, and then the Lord rises up for them a deliverer. In this case... It's Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, which makes me feel just wonderful. <laughs> I'm left-handed. I don't know if any of you all are, too. Uh, there we go. few of you are. That's awesome. And so, um, so Ehud made a sword with two edges, a cubit, probably a foot and a half in length, and fastened it on his right thigh. So when, they did, so when they'd pat him down, they would think, oh, a sword would be here but no it's here and so then he presented the tribute to king eglon of moab i just i'm sorry i'm reading the story because it's kind of interesting and funny now eglon was a very fat man when ehud had finished presenting the tribute he sent the people who carried the tribute on their way 
But he himself turned back at the sculptured skulls near Gil stones near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king said, silence. And all the attendants left from his presence, which was a mistake. <laughs> Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and said, I have a message from God for him. So he rose from his seat. Ehud reaches with his left hand, takes the sword from his right thigh, and thrusts it into Eglon's belly. Uh, the hilt went in, the whole thing. He was so fat he couldn't even get the sword back. <laughs> and then uh, Ehud decided now would be a good time to leave, and he flees. And they eventually open the door. They find the king is dead. And, uh, but at that time... The Lord has strengthened the, Moab, the, 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 the Israelite army and they capture the Moabites. And it says they kill 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. No one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest 80 years. And you're like, this is great. <laughs> Chapter 4. The Israelites did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander, the commander of the army was Sisera, and it goes on again. And as some, some of these are kind of entertaining. Uh, Sisera meets his end when a woman uh, uh, drives a tent peg into his skull. Wrapped them up in a rug. Wrapped them in a rug. And then... <laughs> I mean, it's just like wild. It's so over. And I know some of you are like, uh, this, I really didn't sign up for something this bloody. I'm sorry. Um, but over and over again, once and again. So when we see the term judges, we think of judges as kind of people who decide cases, who determine and like you think, oh, they had judges. So they had someone who was there and you went to them and uh, they... Uh, you would you'd tell them your case, your cause, and they would decide for you. They were wise people. That's actually not what judges were. Judges were people like Ehud. They were deliverers. They were military leaders whom God raised up for a specific time. They were men and women. And Deborah is one of the, probably the most famous of the judges. Gideon is another judge. If you're, I know some of you in here are Gideons, and 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 uh, it's named. Uh, after after Gideon, who raised up is raised up after the people uh, commit um, idolatry with foreign gods, but after he dies, they fall into idolatry again. Do you get the pattern over and over again? Samson. How many of you remember Samson with the long hair? Once again, the Israelites did what was evil on the side of the Lord. The Lord gave them in the hands of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah and goes on, and there's someone who's born, his name is Samson. We're here in 13 and 14, and Samson is a deliverer. He defeats the Philistines, but he makes the mistake of marrying a woman who is a Philistine, and she, she, she leads him to explain why is he so strong, and then they hold him down, they cut his hair off, and he is weak. And uh, although he ends up being strong enough to push down the pillars of their temple and kill them. So, but, so God gives him a little more strength back. It turns out it wasn't really the hair, it was God. And over and over and over again, we see this pattern of disobedience and God's rescue. Disobedience, God's rescue. The judges are the tools, but God is the Savior. But what we see here is this pattern 
the pattern extends into uh, the beginning, and then there's a story at the end of Judges where the tribes then turn on themselves and they almost exterminate, exterminate the Benjaminites. What we see in Judges is not uh, God's plan for them. What we see here is a very dark time. It's a tribal time. Um, we look at that, and, and I want to say the Judges don't necessarily go in serial order because there is not a united sense of Israel. They're still in tribes. They're tribal. They're family. And so... Um, and so over here, these people were being oppressed while these people were rising up. But what we see here is fragmented, disordered, and people who are, are, are struggling deeply. And that's what Judges is written at, is saying this is what it looks like when people disobey God, when there is no authority, when there is no leadership. And so when we turn to 1 Samuel, we start to turn the corner, but in the end of Samuel, we see Samuel raised up, and we start to wonder, is Samuel going to be an example of one of these uh, judges? And we find that in a way he is, uh, but, but he is also one of the prophets. God calls him specifically. There's more time given. In the judges, it simply says they raised up someone, but here it speaks very clearly about what God speaks to them. In that when Samuel, who is born miraculously uh, through being given to Samuel, to Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah, and they promise, if you if you give us a child, we will dedicate him to your service. And they do that. They they send him off, and he lives with Eli and their wicked sons. The wicked sons are, are Eli is a virtuous man, but the sons are not. But instead, once again, we see that holiness does not pass on in a family in, in a in a, in, a, in a familial order, but instead God has called Samuel. And so Samuel then, when we get to uh, chapter 4, comes uh, to this day of, uh, of probably the deepest struggle yet. The, we're going to come back to Ruth last. Yeah, we're gonna, we'll loop back and, then, and, and, and talk about Ruth. Ruth is kind of sits by itself. So I want to continue this this order and then we'll come back to Ruth. I know we only have about five minutes, but Ruth won't take a uh, just just a couple. And so what we see here is the ark of the ark of God, the, the, the very presence of God is stolen. Now it turns out these foreign leaders having the ark of God is not a great idea. Uh, the Philistines, the Philistines are interesting. They, they are the most formidable opponents. Um, historians seem to think that this is a time of historic transition. If you know a little bit about ancient history, you know there's such thing as uh, the, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And this is probably at the time of the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And it's believed that the Philistines were some of the first people in that part of the world that used iron weaponry. And so it was a little bit... Um, they, they were using advanced weaponry, and so they were quite fearsome. They were probably not in the land when Israel came, but they had come from the, from the water, and they had also been invaders and had settled in that area. And so they come, and they capture the Ark of the Covenant, and they find that that is a bad idea. And eventually they beg the people, please take this darn box back. <laughs> it's great. Like they send, like they send money, they send animals, and they're like, just set, take it back. And they find that the ark wants to go back. They say, just put it on some some uh, some cows, and they'll just get back, and they do. 
So what do the people do? So Samuel comes and says, listen, return to the Lord. And if you do it, you really need to put away the foreign gods. And Samuel becomes a judge and a deliverer as well. But this is kind of, I think, probably the last straw for some people. And they say, this is getting old. We need, rather than being a bunch of fragmented tribes scattered, we need one leader. We need someone who will bring us together. We need someone who will be a king so we can have a king like the other countries. And Samuel, by the way, your sons are doorstops and they can't do it. So we need someone uh, we need someone who can really be a king. And uh, Samuel prays and says, these people want a full-on king like the neighbors have. And they say, listen, they have rejected not you, but me. They will not follow me. And so if they want to be a, have a king, give them a king. First uh, Samuel chapter 8 talks about the ways of the king that will reign over them. And he talks about that uh, he will take your fields and vineyards. He will take your olive orchards and give them to his favorite buddies. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and he'll give it to his friends. He'll take your slaves and your cattle and your donkey. He'll put them to work for him, not for you. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you will be no better than slaves. And uh, the tenth is interesting. The parallel, what's the parallel to the tenth? The tithe. Who's the tithe supposed to go to? Who's it going to go to instead? The king. His warning is this king could become your God. So pay attention, and we will get, uh, we'll get to that next week. We'll talk a little bit about the kind of person who becomes king and the experience they have. It's really interesting because when you, when you read it, you think, oh, this is going to be negative. Well, actually, I think it's probably written from the perspective of having a king ends up being a good idea because the judges were so bad. Okay, you all want to talk about Ruth. Let's talk about Ruth for a couple minutes. Ruth fits in here in kind of a strange way. Ruth is not really part of this narrative of the kingship. Ruth is kind of, while this is going on here, Ruth is going on over here. I know many of you have already told me Ruth's one of your favorite stories. Ruth is a real, I think Ruth's a lot of people's favorite story because it reminds us that God is always at work. God is always at work. And God is at work with people who are struggling. Um, uh, there's a man named Elimelech. And in the days when the judges rule, he leaves to go to Moab with his wife and two sons. His two sons get married to women. Uh, one of them is Orpah and the other is Ruth. And eventually all three of the men die, leaving all three of the women as widows. And so Naomi says, you know, I'm old. I'm just going to die. You're young. There's got to be some guy who will marry you again. You should go do that. And Orpah says, I don't want to do it, but I understand that's probably a good idea. But Ruth says, I will not leave you. Ruth shows a loyalty and a faithfulness that I believe that the writer intends for us to see is a loyalty and faithfulness that God, uh, God wants to see from his people. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so through something that's a little bit of trickery, they come back, and they decide that, they, that, that what would it be common would be 
for Elimelech to redeem his land and his family line is for uh, his widow to marry someone else in the family. Strangely enough, that's not what happens. It's his daughter-in-law who marries a distant relative named Boaz. And Boaz, and through some sort of uh, kind of coincidence that was engineered, uh, Boaz meets Ruth, falls head over heels for Ruth, and through his own trickery, arranges to marry her and redeem the land. What we see there, again, is the redemption of the land, that promise that God gave them, working through coincidences. It's a little different than the other ways we've seen God at work. We've seen God at work through, like, direct action. You know, God raised up that person. God spoke to that person. Someone saw a vision. But here, what we see is that through the everyday coincidences and plans, God is at work. And so for what purpose is God at work? And so a son is born to Boaz named Obed. This is the end of Ruth. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. That through this coincidence, so, so, so through this coincidence, what we see is that God has brought in this foreign woman into his community and in fact has made her the grandmother of the greatest king in the history of Israel. And so here's the bookmark I was telling you about. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 that tells the story, Ruth is also the ancestor of Jesus. And through Boaz, do you know who Boaz is? Anyone know who Boaz's mother is? Rahab. Rahab. There's the other bookmark. You see, God has used this for part of this bigger plan. All these stories that are out here that are just so big and so strange that God is working on something bigger and greater. And that is to form these people through this season that is really dark and difficult into the people that will be the light to the nation and eventually be the one to bring uh, in, in, and to be through whom uh, God brings Jesus, the one who is the savior of the world. So these are some strange stories tonight, folks. There's a lot of odd things, but we see that God is a God who keeps, God, keeps his promise. We see that God is one who is working for good. And uh, we see that God is continuing to rescue people even through their repeated and relentless inability to follow him.